I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with the leaders and innovators who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Dr. Robert Wagner from Oak Ridge National Laboratory and winner of the SAE Medal of Honor. On today's episode, we'll discuss the outlook for sustainable energy future. We hope you enjoy this episode. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you here, and I'll summarize this very simply. National labs are cool. The things that are developed in national labs are just awesome. They have a profound effect on society and a profound effect on the economy. One of the great things that our national labs are working on now is sustainable energy, doing a lot of really good research around sustainable energy. Robert, in your opinion, what is the long-term outlook for sustainable energy? So one thing I should I should preface on the beginning is I'm a researcher. I grew up in the labs being a researcher. So that that gives my perspective. And I've always dealt in knowledge discovery and then work closely with industry um, on how you get that to the market. But that hasn't been my primary uh, objective of my career. So just keep that in mind as I, as I talk about the energy transition and things. It's a little bit more from a, a science perspective and what I think it, it's going to take to get there. Um, I also, I always like to talk about the scale of things before I get into it, because in the U.S., we travel on road three trillion miles on road annually, and that's a little over 100,000 miles a second. And if you want to look at it another way that I, I think is kind of fun is if you go back to the 70s, Voyager 1, we launched Voyager 1, furthest object from the Earth right now, it's man-made, moving along at 38,000 miles an hour. If you took after it right now at that kind of rate, you catch it in like 42 hours. So, so the scale is huge, um, and I want people to understand that. And also the the, the amount of uh, right now we're putting out about oh transportation about 45 metric tons of CO2 a second every second. So, when you talk about sustainable energy and what that future looks like, you're talking about a major energy transition where you're really looking at, at transitioning about. 80% of the national energy requirements. And that's, a you know, so that, say rough numbers about 80 quad. And I'm not sure if you or your listeners are used to thinking about quads, but as you can guess, I probably have an example of what a quad is. If you take the average home in the U.S., 2,500 square foot, not the average home, but if you take a 2,500 square foot home from the U.S. footprint, you know, the question I, I like to pose is how long do you think you could power that house on one quad? At 24 million years. So anyway, I want to put this into perspective, the scale we're talking about. And the other thing that, that's changing is that, you know, the world is looking at going, at, at decarbonizing energy and looking for more sustainable energy future. So transportation, which has historically been, I'll say liquid fuels primarily, now is going to need to work with and compete with others for electricity, hydrogen, perhaps, uh, sustainable liquid fuel. So it, in the transition in the future, I think it's going to take all those things. They'll all be ready at different times. They'll be applicable to different areas. Before we we started, you mentioned uh, you know green hydrogen and blue hydrogen, and you know the, how much it's renewable, things like that, and and that's all going to be important. But I think right now we just got to get the infrastructure built. We got to get moving, and we'll those, we'll sort those things out as we go. We can't wait for all green hydrogen or all decarbonized electricity. We need to be pushing everything at the same time to get there. It's probably more than you wanted. No, this is this is fantastic. Now I'm I'm, gonna, I'm going into full-blown geek out with you here. <laughs> so how how much infrastructure is needed? Obviously the hydrogen infrastructure is different from 
road infrastructure, different from liquid fuels infrastructure. It's it different from renewable storage for batteries. How is the infrastructure built where in, in say five years, six years, ten years, even a decade, it doesn't become obsolete as the technology has changed? Perhaps there's a breakthrough in the national lab and it's all hands on deck. We've we've got something special here and you don't have to go rebuild the infrastructure all over again. I mean, that's a that's a really good question. But when you think about electricity and think about hydrogen and even sustainable liquid fuels, they're all just energy carriers, right? And I think there's good reason to see to believe that electricity will be part of our future for a long time. And and not just in transportation and buildings industry and all those things. The same is probably true of hydrogen, but I, I think they have a longer way to go in terms of the infrastructure. You know, we have a we have electric grid. You can argue on is it enough or is are the sources renewable? And, and those are all good arguments, good discussions are all things we're working. Hydrogen, you know, the, there's not a lot of infrastructure in terms of transportation, uh, although Department of Energy just announced several regional uh, hydrogen hubs. This was just in the last week or two. And these are going to, they're really intended to push the development of this infrastructure. So I think watch for that. I think that'll be important. Uh, the thing to, to keep in mind, though, is we, we talk about uh, electricity and hydrogen. It's a big part of our future. It's, it's not just ensuring we have sustainable, renewable sources. We also have to worry about we have to worry about storage, distribution, dispensing. So there, there's a lot to this. And if the buildings industry saying, "Hey, we want it," and, and, and the manufacturing industry wants it as well, you know, we, we need to work with them and sort out how we do this. And of course, the grid's a big part of it. Is the grid mature enough to handle this? Probably needs more build out. Storage is going to be important. I mean, if we're going to pull up, you know, say 20 over-the-road trucks and, and charge them at greater than a megawatt, you have to have some storage, you know, on site there. You're not just going to hook that to the grid and pull off. And, and it could be short-duration storage. We talk a lot about long-duration, but what about short-duration storage? And, and on this theme of uh, sort of a sustainable energy future, how do you move renewable energy around the world in a big way? Years ago, I read this uh, interesting article where I think it was Germany was talking about how do we ship and get nation months of renewable energy stored. And so there, it's an interesting conversation to have because some parts of the world may not be able to be renewable 100% based on how we think of it today and what our technologies are of today. Short duration storage, how is that achieved? Is that through battery technology? Is that through some of the cement breakthroughs? Is that liquid fuel storage what does that look like from a technical perspective in the simplest terms i think of like flywheels yeah that'd be a real simple thing to think about say you you have some uh, and this is just robert's <laughs> thought on this <laughs> say you have you know you have uh, uh, some truck stop and you're going to charge at megawatt plus you know you spin up a flywheel you're able to charge fast and then you you know you spin it back up uh, for the next and again, not not advocating that's a solution, but just an example of what short duration storage might look like. So is it fair to say that the transition to sustainable energy is going to be a, a, a multi-pronged approach where certain solutions work for, say, class 8 vehicles where home storage or grid storage, there will be different types of approaches to sustainable energy depending on the use case? Yeah, uh, that's, yes, absolutely. I think it's going to take everything and there's definitely going to be better fits for different things. And we're, we're kind of seeing this already. And if you look at, there was a national blueprint put out uh, for transportation. And I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it was, uh, it's worth Googling if you haven't. It was put out by DOE, DOT, HUD, and EPA. So they put out this national blueprint, which is sort of a vision of what the future might look like. 
and it has electricity, hydrogen, uh, sustainable liquid fuels in different sectors. And, and it even kind of shows that. It's trying to give an outlook of what's near-term, mid-term, and, and longer-term. And it shows it's going to take a bit of everything as we move forward. One of the challenges comes, though, is where do you invest now? You know, some things are harder than others, and, and so some tough decisions are made on how they invest. How would you, for our listeners, how would you classify sustainable liquid fuels? Is that renewable diesel, or how, or how would you classify that or explain it? Actually, that's a really good question. Anything you can do to make it sustainable in terms of renewable, and would it be, if it's classic, sort of what we think of as renewable diesel, where you could drop in, I mean, that's perfect, because ideally it, it can just go in, there's not much uh, change needed. But for other renewables, and let me give you an example of, say, ethanol. When I was uh, earlier in my career, I helped lead a, a big Department of Energy initiative, initiative called the Co-Optimization of Fuels and Engines. And we start, stood this up in 2014. NREL, National Renewable Energy Lab, John Farrell, uh, was the lead for us at that time and helped us stand it up. And we were talking about 30% displacement of liquid fuels with something like ethanol or some other, uh, I'll say, renewable or sustainable fuel. And that was a really, that was a huge challenge. And now we're talking about 100%. So the challenge is even bigger. So there's a lot of different ways to do this, a lot of different types of feedstocks. And we might need to get into fuels that we're not used to using uh, in mass quantities. So say something like a methanol. What do you see the biggest challenge facing the transition to sustainable energy today, especially looking at a, a low carbon future? Is it technology? Is it regulatory? Is it consumer adoption? I think it's all those things. And it, it's time. These things will take time. No matter how aggressive we are on the spending, it's, it, it, there's so many pieces of this that have to move together. And, you know, you, you said it well, the, the consumer acceptance, you know, we have to have a pull as much as a push. And I think we can get there. It just it, it will take time to get all this moving. What's exciting to me now, though, is a lot of companies are really they're really on board. You know, they're pushing these technologies. They're making big dollar decisions on what they push. The government's making big investments, trying to drive the research, drive the infrastructure. Uh, the Department of Energy, or I'm sorry, the Department of Transportation even has a, what they call ARPA-I now, um, which is focused on infrastructure. So it's just going to take all these things happening at the same time, and, and it, it's not going to happen overnight. The, the consumers, they ha they have to buy in. And I use the word, they have to believe. They have to be a one of part of it. They have to see the positive benefit. I could see things I've talked to friends perhaps that – on the sticker when you buy the vehicle, if this vehicle has reduces carbon emissions by X and you've planted X amount of trees, oh, this is really great. This empowers them and they feel good about the purchase they're making. And getting into automotive, history always has a funny way of, of repeating itself. I forget the, the Mark Twain quote there, so I don't want to uh, misquote Mark Twain, but it, it sometimes it, let's say it, it rhymes. And the early automotive design went through a period of diversified powertrain propulsion options. And today we're seeing a large shift of, towards battery electric, we're seeing a rise in, in hybrid sales. Does history repeat itself or rhyme where the consumer is saying, okay, these are my low carbon op options, not necessarily all uh, battery electric, but there are different options and they kind of just gravitate which one works best for their family and for their needs? I think so. I think uh, like like for myself, we do a lot of traveling you know, across multiple states and, and right now we haven't bought an electric vehicle yet for that reason, but it's very high on our list. And I'll tell you with all the new offerings and what's happened with the range in recent years, it's its starting to become practical, I think, for people who have a family situation like I do, you know, where we're scattered and we, we have to travel a lot. 
So I, I think, again, it took time, but I think we're to a point where we'll, we're starting to get a good market penetration and the poll is because it's, it's going to be a fun to drive vehicle and it meets my needs and it can do what I, what I need on a day to day. Now, everybody, may, that may not be for them. And I think that's fine. It's just going to take time. The thing about, uh, and I, I own an EV and I'm a, I'm a proud EV owner that's not discussed enough, is the convenience factor. You come home, the vehicle goes to sleep, you go and make dinner for the family, and you charge it, and it's sleeping. And when you got to take the kids to school the next day, it's charged. You don't have to go to a gas station. To me, that's a huge convenience factor that's not discussed. Now, that, that's on the consumer personal side. And then on the commercial side, over 300 billion miles a year traveled by commercial vehicles in the United States. There's a lot of economic reports. Well, we can't go battery electric. We're not going to get the range because of the weight issues there. Does hydrogen become, do you think, in your opinion, the dominant renewable energy for the commercial trucks? Or is there a new technology that's emerging that could eventually replace battery electric or hydrogen for those long-haul commercial trucks, especially Class 8? You know, I think if we get the infrastructure in place, it, it's certainly part of it. It's, you know, we have these, these very aggressive goals going out to 2050, which is, it's a long time off, but there's a lot of infrastructure to change. I think for hydrogen and, and I think the biggest application right now I'll say right now or near term, I shouldn't say right now, but near term is for those, those cases where it comes home at night. And so, you, you know, you have a consistent fueling place as it builds out, the network builds out across the U S that'll change. But, but right now, I mean, you have to have places to fuel and we don't have that at the moment, not, not with enough quantity where electrification, if you look how that is built out, heavy truck and things like that, we don't have the charging stations we need yet. But look what happened in light duty in the last few years. I mean, it is really coming on strong. And, and I have to think is they will sort it out and that will continue to be built out. But if I can add one more thing, too, we also have just an incredible liquid fuel infrastructure out there. I mean, if you look at all the stations around the country. So the other question on that would be if we do go to, say, a different type of uh, liquid fuel, and, and maybe it's methanol or something like DME or, or what have you. Uh, some, you know, how do we deal with the compatibility of the fleet and the compatibility stations? Is that something we could retrofit to? So I, I think we think about all these things and they're going to have different timelines. Then, then does renewable diesel become kind of, we want to call it, oh, as a friend of mine in the industry, call it a bridge fuel to help us get towards there? It becomes a, a, a bridge or a, or a stepping stone? I'm not sure if it's, if it's truly renewable and it's truly net zero. I think it could be as much as part of the future is the bridge to that future. That's a very honest answer, and that's probably the best answer I ever heard, ever heard on that. Because there's been a lot of de- <laughs> there's been a lot of debate around that. I have friends that own large shipping companies, and they're they're trying to get by as much renewable diesel as they can. And then there's other friends on the other side say, no, 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 that does that's not as good as battery electric. So I really appreciate your honest answer there. Is infrastructure the key to achieving the 2050 goals? Is that the thing that has to be built up the most in order to to achieve the global net zero 2050 goals? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I would agree with that statement because there's there's just a lot to do. I mean, pick all the energy carriers we're talking about, the sustainable liquid fuels we've talked about. We do have a major infrastructure, probably not compatible. Maybe it is if it's completely renewable and to drop in, but let's assume it's not. So what would you do to make it compatible? Electrification, massive grid system. Um, it's going to need some things, especially if we're look, depending on renewables that are intermittent. So we're talking... Again, as we, we started with not just the sources, but the storage, the distribution, the dispensing. And then probably the least mature of them at the moment is, as far as widespread use, I should say, is hydrogen. So 
you know, all these, there, there's a lot of different pieces to this. There's a lot of different pieces. Is that do we ha- we have the pieces the well, the well known pieces we have the battery electric technology with the hydrogen technology with the renewable diesel technology, and we have we have microgrids that are now starting to pop up or, around the globe to help reduce the carbon output. Overall, though, do we have the technology that's needed today to achieve the twenty fifty goals, or do we have to invent new stuff? Do companies have to commercialize stuff, or where where do we stand from a technological standpoint? There's actually a an interesting road. I think it's actually a roadmap put out by IEA. It talked about 2050 and state of technology, and and I, I mostly agree with it. Where they they said about 50% of the technologies we need are they're in the market, and they're they're being used, and the other 50% are under development. So think of third prototype stages. But I would I would probably add that a lot of the technologies that we I wouldn't say a lot, but some portion of the technologies we need are we haven't even thought of them yet. Or they're they're in very very early development stages where we haven't made all the connections. I mean, 2050, you know, it's almost 30 years from now, and it is a it's a short time when you think about all the infrastructure we need to build, but it's a long time than what can happen to technology. You know, I'll, I'll give you one one quick example. The iPhone came out in 2007, and look how it's changed our lives. 2005, I couldn't have imagined an iPhone. I, I joked to my friends on that like chat GPT last November, I read this article and I was like, what is this? You know, so I looked at it online and, and couldn't believe it. And and now it's evolved even more. Now it's just November. So what other things are going to happen between now and, and 2050? So again, we it's your maybe I sorry, I, I went off on a tangent a bit there, but I think there's some technologies that'll be part of it that we know, but I think there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of things being developed. A lot of technology is going to change. It's going to be fascinating to watch from from the sidelines. You're an engineer or somebody's going to have a major technological breakthrough that could go on to p- potentially change the energy landscape. On that theme, are there any new energy technologies bubbling up in the in the labs or research papers that you've read that have really piqued your interest and said, "Okay, there's something here. Something's cooking." So the the things that there, there's of course lots going on in, in the labs and going on at industry in terms of better battery technologies, hydrogen storage, you know, better utilize, utilization of these things. But I'll tell you the things that get me the most excited to think about is the impact of say AI on these things going in the future in these systems. The impact of quantum computing. What might quantum computing? really look like in quantum security and quantum sensing and, and things like that. You know, the, these are the the things that I look back in, in history on, just like where computing has gotten us, you know, over the last, I don't know, 70 years, say. Well, where will quantum take us? So it's a big unknown, but those are the things I think about to get me pretty exciting. If I can tell you a little bit, I have some thoughts on computing I thought I'd share to kind of put this in context is, if you go back to the 50s, Computing was electromechanical systems. And in the 80s, you know, 15-year-old me was mowing yards and, and buying an Apple IIe. Late 90s, a teraflop was 50-something million dollars. And about, I don't know, within the last decade, you could buy a couple teraflop machine. It's liquid-cooled. You put in your car. And now we're at exaflop systems. And uh, exaflop, if you're... So Oak Ridge has the world's fastest computer. I got to you know, give props to that, although someone will surpass us. And, it, you know, we're, we're always just pushing. Exaflop, a billion, billion calculations a second. And to put that in context, 
the universe is about a billion, billion seconds old. So if you did a, ca a calculation every second for the age of the universe, that's how much an exaflop system does in a second. So, I mean, technology has really moved. And so when I think about even the future of regular computing, I'll say binary computing, future quantum computing, and all these things, and what they're going to do on the development of new technologies that are going to be, you know, commonplace one day. I mean, that's what gets me excited thinking about those. I don't know if you, uh, if you read anything on recent Nobel Prize in physics was for attosecond. Basically, they're able to, to pulse light at attosecond levels, which means you can start looking in inside atoms and looking at things that are going on with molecules. That's an, that's an amazing thing and where that could lead towards sensing and development of quantum systems and stuff like that. Maybe more than you wanted. <laughs> no, but it's great. But you think about the impact that that, that breakthrough is, is going to have, especially as it gets commercialized. On the, on the AI front and the impact that AI will have, do you see increasing energy? Because right now I can see AI where you, demand spikes, where the AI can predict a demand spike in certain areas and the grid can have the excess capacity to handle that and per, from a prediction standpoint to handle all that and then to reroute energy sources automatically. Do you see it from an AI, in the, let's call it the early days of AI for energy, increasing the efficiency of the energy grid and, and the and the energy network that we have today? Yeah, I, that's one one application I could see. I could see the potential of doing things like that or, or managing complex systems of vehicles and mobility systems. So think about, you know, controlling these complex systems of systems. But I also think about it at a very fundamental level, too. So say you're trying to do some very fundamental modeling from direct numerical stimulation and you want to you want to take these very fundamental things that are very computational intensive and you want to use them in engineering codes. There's a lot you can do around AI to, to bridge these things as well. So it, it's at all scales. And what's enabled it has really been the speed of computers. So I'm, I'm very much a statistics person. So when I, I did my PhD, it wasn't in statistics, but I took a lot of statistics just out of, just, I enjoy it. You know, I'm, I'm a numbers person. And what limited us back then was compute power. And now we have it. So I tend to think about AI is just, it's a lot of statistics with a lot of power. Now, some might want to argue with me, but because they certainly have developed new methods and some really clever things, but computing has enabled a lot of that. Computing's special. You think about the impact computing has had on society. Imagine if we didn't have computers where we'd be today. It would be a whole, it'd be a whole different world. And it's going to be exciting to see where quantum goes as well. There's so many examples like that. And I, I tend to, when I gave that Buckendale presentation, I referred to these things as disruptive surprises because even the internet, you know, 30 years ago when I was a student, the internet as we know it was not a, was not a thing to the common person like myself. It, it just was not there. GPS was not there. Um, GPS came to be from JPL in the early 60s when Sputnik's up there and they're like, the engineers are noticing that there's a frequency change and a, a signal off of it and use the Doppler effect. And, you know, there's a lot of things that happened after that, but now we have GPS and it's on my phone. So all these really interesting breakthroughs that really weren't intended for, say, our industry, the transportation industry, we're just reaping huge benefit from it. So what's next? And that's where I think quantum AI, new manufacturing methods. Think about if you were to design an engine right now where you didn't have to worry about the constraints of casting. It might be a very different approach. The fundamentals and material development. You know, I mentioned that, that recent Nobel Prize with attoseconds, which is going to enable some attosecond physics. So imagine now you're starting to look at materials at 
it, an atomistic level uh, with a lot more precision and, and perhaps able to design things differently. And again, this is just me speculating, but the things that get me excited. Because designs, designs of the vehicles are going to change. Design of potentially rail will change. Design of uh, maritime will change when, when we have all these breakthroughs. And I've been on the big kick for a while. It's going to increase efficiency. Perhaps there's a better design with, with, with less drive that uses less energy that, that makes it more efficient. And that's special. We haven't touched on, on, on maritime yet, but there is a lot of movement globally to decarbonize maritime what are your thoughts on maritime as it relates to decarbonizing maritime and using sustainable energy in maritime i think maritime is interesting because just in the nature of of some of these uh, some of these big vessels and you know there's there's a lot of stories out there where they have some out there running on ammonia now they're of course looking at hydrogen so they're looking a lot of different um say hydrogen or hydrogen dense type fuels and it's a it's an area I think there's a lot of opportunity. The one concern that I think people will have is, let's say I, I have a or have a vessel out there that's that's running on methanol. Will I be able to get that fuel in the port in all the ports that I need to get that fuel? So there's those kind of considerations as well. Do you feel that maritime is a competitive advantage since at the ports have they have at some ports? I repeat, not all ports, but some ports have the land to put in the fueling infrastructure, and a lot of these vessels run on fixed routes. Perhaps let's just use. Uh, New York to Liverpool, uh, port, port, port of Miami to uh, Liverpool, for example. So they're going on consistent fixed routes where you only have to have the infrastructure at one place where a commercial vehicle, let's say you're going to visit your parents or, or I'm going to visit my in-laws. We're going to different destinations all the time. Nobody's particularly going the same way. Does that give maritime, a, let's call it a competitive advantage since those are fixed routes and the infrastructure is there, the room is there. And then from a policy standpoint, their facilities are zoned for that type of infrastructure as well? It's a good question. I have to be honest. I, I don't have a good answer for it. You, On the surface, it sounds like it would be, but I don't I don't feel I understand all the economics and all the things that feed that. There goes the statistics for you. <laughs> <laughs> you had mentioned uh, continuing to improve energy efficiency and, and, and all those things, which I think is really, really important. Sometimes it gets lost in the discussion. When you, you factor like in the U.S., we reject two thirds of the energy uh, that we produce and we don't use it. About a third of it's used. If you go look at there's some energy diagrams that come out of Lawrence Livermore every year. They're really interesting from that standpoint. So there's sort of three parts. There's that part. The other part we talked about, you have to transition about 80 percent of your uh, energy supply and, and distribution, dispensing, storage, all those things. But then the other the other part that we can't forget about is whatever technologies we put out there in mass, it has to be sustainable as well. So that's either with readily available renewable resources, or we're getting into this very circular economy of reuse, repurpose, things like that. And I don't think we can lose track of that. That's you, you can't, you can come up with great technologies, but if we don't have the resource to build it out, to scale, it's not going to get there. Now that doesn't mean that, you couldn't have a lot of different technologies bringing what they can to the to the challenge. And I certainly would not say, well, let's not pursue electrification because this one approach is is not going to fully scale. You know, it's it, it, we're going to take steps to get to where we need to be, but we can't lose sight of that things have to be sustainable, even on the resource front. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm curious, though, why do we reject two thirds of the energy? From a thermodynamic standpoint, the parts that I would be used to 
thinking about is it's very low quality, low temperature, not much you can do with it to rejected heat. I'm sure there's there's many other pieces to that, but that's uh, from being sort of a thermodynamics background. That's what I think about. Okay, so this is a broad national laboratory question. Is there a colleague of yours in a national laboratory that's studying this and trying to figure out how to capture some of that energy that is rejected? That's important to a lot of research going on. There was also a uh, something the Department of Energy years ago put on what they called these big idea summits. And, and there was one idea discussed, and that one's called HEATER. I can't remember what the acronym stood for. It was very much about that. Uh, or that was a big part of it is is trying to better utilize low grade heat. And I know in the buildings areas, they they certainly look at those things. I would say prior across manufacturing, everybody's always looking at that. How can we make better use of this low grade heat? As we introduce these new sustainable technology, how can we make sure that there's a sustainable resource where if somebody goes all in on this, that there's a I don't know, let's use a warehouse terminology. There's plenty of black backlog in there. There's plenty plenty of freight, plenty of boxes. Don't worry, we're not going to run out of Cheerios today. But for for energy, how, how is that modeled out or how, how is that done? I think that's modeled a, a lot of different ways. And it's always a concern when we're talking about new technologies is that, yeah, if, I like how you kind of put it. If everybody says, all right, we're all in and we're going, is there enough resource to do it? And what's the price of that resource not just in in dollars, but in what's going on in certain countries, you know, whether it's social things or local economic things, how do we sort of balance all that? And it, it's a good question. I don't think there's a, a silver bullet to it either, uh, but it's, we have to think about it. We have to think about it. And the one thing, this is my personal opinion that we have to think about, and we can look at history. We have to understand the geopolitical or the potential geopolitical implications of going in on certain technologies. And it just seems that we learn these lessons over and over again as society shifts to more sustainable low carbon mobility future in the deployment of new technologies what role will the national laboratories play in enabling this enabling future will you be our cheerleaders will you be our developers will you be our engineers what role will the national laboratories play i think what we bring to it is sort of what we've we've always brought to it is the national labs i'll, I'll think about oak ridge but then there, i can give you many examples from other labs is we steward very large science resources that like no other place can really steward. Like industry wouldn't steward an exascale computer. They wouldn't steward, you know, massive neutron sources that are used for fundamental materials discovery, things like that. So the labs are really good at stewarding these big resources and then working closely with industry and academia and even other national laboratories to, to bridge that science to application. And, and to me, that's been the really exciting thing for me having a career is I came to Oak Ridge as a mechanical engineer and I was doing engine combustion work. And within a couple of years, Oak Ridge turned on what they call the Spallation Neutron Source, which is the world's most powerful pulse neutron source. So I had a friend over there and I thought, well, I'd like to image a diesel particulate filter. Could I do that with neutrons? And turns out you can, although we did it on a, they call the high flux isotope reactor. And, and anyway, so there's these big, these big tools that help you get to some of the fundamentals and then the application. The supercomputers too, I've had a, a lot of great opportunity to help set up collaborations with industry and the supercomputers. So it's, it's, it's really neat to bring these big science tools to bear. The other thing I will say, well, I think the labs are poised pretty well too. The thing nice about the labs too, that there's all this expertise, there's all these facilities and we're really poised 
to help in times of national emergency. Uh, the pandemic was was a recent example where the 17 labs uh, formed a collaboration. They worked with others and, you know, they accelerated our knowledge of the virus and what a vaccine will look like, accelerated manufacturing of, of masks and ventilators. So, yeah, the labs played that kind of role. I mean, right now, my division, there is many, many uh, formal collaborations with industry where we're bringing our expertise and they're bringing their expertise and we work hand in hand. So basically, you're acting as a, I don't want to say as a, as a meteor, but you're bringing individuals together to have open, honest discussions about the future of sustainable energy and what is it going to look like and, and kind of how do we do this together, collaborate together potentially? Yeah, and then how do we answer some of the fundamental needs that they have that they need help solving? I've, I've also also viewed us as a, an unbiased source of data for decision-making. Again, on my background where I spent my time in combustion and looking at a lot of different, say, I'll say uh, unconventional combustion approaches and engines. And there was a lot of discussion out there on what does that really look like? What's the potential of that? And so a lot of my work focused on trying to take these, these fundamental, I'll say, breakthroughs in combustion and put them in production viable hardware and trying to put that information out in the literature on, hey, here's what it really looks like. Um, you know, when you have all the concerns and constraints of something that potentially could go out in the roof. So you have this experience of, of working in National Laboratory, interacting with industry. What technologies think will be commonplace in transportation 25 years from now, two and a half decades? Well, I would, I would say I think electrification is, is going to play a major role. I do think we'll still we'll see sustainable liquid fuels in some form. I don't know if that will be more in, in uh, say, the commercial vehicle sector, uh, marine, locomotive, things like that. I think we'll still see it. But I think electrification will continue to grow. Um, I think it, it's all part of our future. Now, what the other part I think is going to be really exciting, too, is to think about what will the computing, sensing, controls, management of these complex systems, what will that all look like? You know, connected and autonomous vehicles, I, I think that will continue to grow. I don't know what it will look like in, say, 20 years from now, but it's certainly uh, been very aggressive. It started out, I think, with a lot more optimism then you know and then it kind of reality set in and and but now boy a lot has happened in the last say decade in that area i tend to think of everything like the gartner hype curves i don't know if you've ever looked at the gartner <laughs> hype curve yes. and uh i love them because i actually wish they didn't have the word hype in them because i think it's got a negative connotation to it which it, it's not you know it's it's like okay we get really excited and you have that peak of inflated expectations and then then the trough of delusionment delusionment and then you you know you start climbing out you start saying okay all right here's where we really are now let's see what's going to happen and uh, i think some of the greatest technologies we've had all started that way right you know you get super excited put a lot of effort into it and you find okay this is really hard what can we do and then you end up doing great things i'm an optimist if you can't tell you have to be an optimist yeah. you have to be the cheerleader for society i mean that's how i look at it you have to you have to cheer what's the best for society you mentioned rail. There, I actually I had a long talk with a Wharton professor of rail a couple months ago about the friction on the tracks and how that plays into to the energy use. It was really, really interesting. Do we start to see more sustainable energy? You mentioned uh, sustainable liquid fuels go into rail. We're seeing stuff being developed, technology around battery for the locomotives. Do you see that? We, we, we talked about maritime. We, we, we talked about ground vehicles, commercial vehicles. Do you also see rail being a big target for increasing the sustainability of rail? 
Yeah, I, I think it all has to be. I think every everything does. If if we're truly going to get to a a net zero future, and I know the the vision is by twenty fifty, and and can't wait to see how everything develops because I think it's going to be exciting. But we have to consider everything. And and again, I think there's going to be technologies out there that we're we don't quite fully understand or have thought of yet. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you something exciting that I think is is going to be important at some point is wireless charging. And you can argue whether it's going to be important for stationary or dynamic when you're driving down the road, but I think it's going to play a role. If you're talking you had an electric vehicle, you come in, come home in the evenings, you plug it in, you go have dinner. It'd be great not to even think about it. You just roll in and, and it, it just charges itself. And, you know, they're to the point now where they're starting to put, you know, a couple hundred kilowatts across, you know, six, seven inch gap high efficiency as high as you plug it into the wall so and we're i feel like we're at the early days still so where is that going to really end up i think all these kind of technologies that are being looked at and they're you know just continuing to push they're all going to settle out somewhere that's going to i think change how we do things the change how you do things wireless power is interesting there's a lot of talk of putting it on on freeways or, or interstates but what if you put it in parking lots if you're you're at a target or, or a walmart or you're or you have it in a at a driveway at a home so you're visiting your friend and perhaps you go to the friend's house for dinner and your vehicle's charging when you're not even thinking about it one it's more cost effective because the homeowner will, will take care of that and then the retail establishment will will pay for that because they want you to to shop in their store that wireless becomes a really interesting Let's call it an, an economic incentive to shop in my store versus the other store. And that could change consumer behavior. And then consumers become part of it. And then then the whole debate around range anxiety and then you have charging anxiety. That all goes away. What we do know, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch how these new sustainable energy technologies are developed, deployed, and commercialized. In your opinion, Robert, what does the future of energy look like? To me, and for transportation anyway, and I'll, let me focus more on commercials of different animals. So just me and you driving our car every day. I could envision a day where we don't even know when we're fueling it. It's just, it's just fueled. You know, years ago, we'd proposed something along this line. We, line, we call extreme range where maybe you only fuel the, the equivalent of what you would for uh, an oil change nowadays. But I can imagine a future where it's just always being refueled whether it's wirelessly or however it's doing that, it's also scavenging and, and we're not even thinking about that. I mean, you talk about plugging in every night again. If, if you had wireless, would you ever know when you refueled it for sure? Nope. You just drive it. You just make the most of it. And then if I never had to think about refueling, I would never consider getting rid of an electric car because you never, well, I mean, you have to think about going to a gas station. I have to plan for this nonsense. Oh, no, 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 no. And then the, con then the consumers won. And people could plug plug holes in that because okay i'm gonna go on a trip what's that look like so that would be a different situation but i i don't know i'm i'm optimistic that it's going to be a really interesting fuel now commercial or future commercial commercial vehicles different animal uh you know those things are up 95 percent plus of the time they've got to be up there's no two ways about it, it it's just going to be different it's going to be different it's going to be exciting it's as, as we said in this conversation there's not a one size fits all to the future of sustainable sustainable energy there's going to be a multi-pronged approach, or if you want to use the, the, the flywheel term there, it, it's going to happen. Sustainable energy is going to scale, and it is the future. Robert, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them today? Yeah, the, the, probably the, the takeaway from my career, you know, I've had a fun career at the National Labs. And with SAE, you know, SAE has been sort of my forum to, to meet people. And, you know, my takeaway would be that, that nothing's impossible. You know, if you have a strong and passionate team from diverse fields, 
it's amazing what you can what you can do. Now people say, yeah, but it takes money, it takes this, it takes that. And of course it does. But in terms of technology and where we will be, we, we shouldn't limit ourselves. We will get there. Nothing is impossible. Be a cheerleader. Be like Robert. Nothing is impossible. Today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. The future is sustainable energy. Robert, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we hear how Cumberland Additive is leading the growth of additive manufacturing in Pittsburgh. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.